Hey everybody. This episode focuses on the space that we take up as a queer community. It asks the question, do the actions of our community matter as much as those of other communities? Because as a society, we seem to acknowledge and preserve the historic spaces of straight people far more often than we do of queer people. Why is that, you know? Like, what are the systems in place for the broader heterosexual community that work to preserve their locations of cultural significance? To help answer that question, I flew down to Atlanta, Georgia, and sat with preservationist Charlie Payne. And here is our conversation. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Bottomless Coffee Podcast. We are literally doing something brand new. I am in Atlanta, Georgia, instead of my usual space in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And we're here with Charlie Payne. Hey, Charlie. Hi, Jerome. I'm doing great. Um, just woke up, walked out of my house, came here. It's about 50 degrees, but to me it feels like, I don't know, 20. <laughs> oh, um, oh, does it? <laughs> to me it does. I'm from Atlanta. Well, good morning. You've got coffee. I do. I uh, do apologize again for not having your bottomless coffee mug, but I went to a place called Dancing Goats Coffee. Free promo for Dancing Goats. Thank you for having mugs when I needed mugs. We are going to talk about like culture and preservation. Because you are really into, professionally, and I, I think personally, um, into preserving spaces in particular. Is that right? Yes. But you're not um, a crazy preservation person. Well, maybe everyone's a little bit crazy. But um, I am... Uh, I'm crazy. I, I was yeah, pointing at myself. I'll agree with that. <laughs> um, so, yes, I have done preservation for many years with Historic Atlanta. I went to school at College of Charleston. But what's, what I found interest in is being able to use historic preservation to preserve queer space, especially in a time where many of our queer spaces not owned by the community are just disappearing. And it's primarily due to location of these spaces in very urban areas and also rising land value and oftentimes there's not a financial incentive to preserve these spaces for the queer community. So we had, you're, you're taking me back here because I want to feel, I feel like it was like two years ago. I had a conversation with another person named um, Ryan Colburn about city planning and segregation and how a lot of what we see in our cities is the result of like failed experiments. Um, and so when you say that a lot of queer spaces are located in certain parts of urban areas, what, I'm, what I think I'm hearing is that they're typically like less, uh, initially placed in less desirable parts of the city. So at the time where Queer Spaces ended up forming is using Midtown Little Five Points here in Atlanta as an example. The reason a lot of queer communities located in the inner city neighborhoods is because of what we're going to call white flight. And in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, the mainstream community abandoned the city and you left behind black people, LGBTQ people, and other minorities. And in cities like Atlanta, 
New York, Minneapolis, these communities took ownership of the city when financial resources left. Yeah. And here in Atlanta, you see the queer community especially take over Midtown at that time, especially in like the late 70s and early 80s. And even though they didn't have all this money to build new houses like all the people that were getting federal subsidies to move outside of the city, we retrofitted buildings and created our own space. Hmm. Yeah. But now things have changed. Because I'm, I'm, yes. you know, I looked outside of that window there and I saw a lot of cranes. Yeah. Um, I occasionally hear like the, the whirring of something drilling, drilling like foundations for another skyscraper. Mm -hmm. There's a lot going on in Midtown. But when you, you mentioned like the financial incentives not being there, I think maybe it, it's, it's like, well, we didn't, maybe we didn't own the space, maybe we rented the space, and now that land is so much more valuable for condos or whatever. Yeah, so there's a mix of things going on. Gentrification. Exactly, <laughs> but so primarily it's that we don't own our own spaces, um, but then also the spaces that we say that are sometimes somewhat owned by the community, it's more like an ally. And what has happened in a few cases is that ally passes away and someone inherits yeah. the property and they don't care. That's legit. So that's another way that that happens. Um, and there's very few spaces that don't have that development pressure left. So you are involved in preservation. How long has this, how long has this been going on? This has gone a long time. Um, so I got involved in preservation when I was about 15 years old. Okay. When I was in high school. I lived in Druid Hills, Georgia, which is just, I don't know, like a mile east of the connector in Midtown. But it, across the street from my house, there was a building known as Briarcliff Manor. And it was... Ooh, okay, the, I'm going to put up an image of Briarcliff Manor. Here. It's, it's really nice. Um, but it... At the time, it was in horrible condition, boarded up, constantly used in films as like a, a horror movie or something. Horror movie. <laughs> it was. I'm blanking on all the movie names that's been yeah. in, but um, I can send you a list. Oh, please. But at the time, it was just going through what is called passive demolition, which, for those who don't know, it's demolition by neglect. You're mm. just purposely neglecting it so you can get away with eventually demolishing it. Whether it's through public allowance of demolition, but here it was in a historic district. And so they were trying to let it get so far yeah. that they could claim, we can't do anything. And I call BS because Emory University has an endowment that is Huge. Oh, they owned it? They owned it. Oh, and they, got, and they were saying they couldn't do anything? And they okay, said it was sure. too expensive to maintain. <laughs> and then at the same time, they got it for free. And the wow. property was valued at $42 million. Wow. So I'm like... Do you know what they wanted to build on it? So it's, it's still the same today in terms of what they probably want to build. From my understanding, they wanted to build housing and be able to expand their campus in some form. If you don't know Atlanta, which I know you do. Uh, it's um, changed, girl. I don't know. It, it has. Do I know it? Um, <laughs> I don't know. But 
Emory's become very landlocked by the neighborhoods around it. And even the Midtown campus is pretty landlocked. It's a struggle for a university to continue growing yeah. at either of those locations. And so by having this third 42-acre property, yeah, just I think they're waiting to see what they need to do with it. But I did know that housing was a component of their last master plan. Okay. Now, how did you... What, what did you do to try to preserve this property? Oh, yeah. Um, so in this effort, it was really just a PR campaign. Because okay. Emory has the money. Emory has the resources to get this type of stuff done. Mm-hmm. And so I just went on a crusade, calling them out. A small crusade. <laughs> just a small crusade. Um, just to call them out, especially when they get this property for free. It's the son of the founder of Coca-Cola's home. Oh. It's, you're going to love this house. Each interior room is, the guy was crazy, by the way. Okay. Okay. Every single room is a different style of architecture. Okay. And each room was built just to outdo one of his family members. So when his... So when Callumwald was built by Charles Howard Candler, Asa Candler Jr., then added on a huge music room that was bigger and <laughs> higher in style. For example. So he did not like his family, I'm, I'm guessing? I don't know. He was a very eccentric man, and I think he had a lot of insecurities. And a lot of money. And a lot of money. And, and there you go. That's yeah. what you get. He put a public pool in his front yard and Zoo Atlanta basically began in his front yard. There was a oh. whole zoo with elephants, lions, you name it. Neat. Yeah. Oh and if gosh. you go over there, you can still see the bamboo. I love it. Right? Okay, so um, was, was he queer? He was not queer. He was married to a woman named Florence. So that was your first like, preservation in general. That was my first preservation project, and I had to do it alone. I was refused help by many different organizations. Interesting. No one wanted to take on Emory University. Sure. And I think that's kind of where I got like my first like bit of, okay, I can do this. Yeah, good for yeah. you. Yeah, that's incredible. especially for being 15 years old. I think that right. really helped me at the time. Right. <laughs> now I'm getting old and they're just like, shit. It's like, am I eccentric? I don't know. <laughs> Just a little bit. Yeah. Well, then um, tell me about your first queer preservation project. It's hard for me to f- pick a first one only because the first one that I truly advocated heavily for is not the same as the first one I interacted with. Okay. The first one I heavily advocated for, we'll talk a little bit later in the podcast about, but that is the Atlanta Eagle Building on Ponce de Leon Avenue. And that was a lot of fun, but it also took a little bit of an emotional toll on me. Sure. um, Just because of how it played out. And we'll get into like why it felt like that. We can do it now. Okay, Why not? Why not? So let's just... Scroll forward to the... Yeah, so like the Atlanta Eagle mm-hmm. uh, is a property that I'm familiar with. <laughs> so you'd go, like every, every, this audience should be pretty queer. Um, every city feels like has an eagle 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so this one was seemed to cater to like leather um, more so than like twinks or twunks or whatever. Um, and I know it was the site of some raids by the Atlanta police. And I think there were uh, lawsuits uh, alleging harassment of the LGBTQ community. And so there is definitely like historic significance to the space and what happened there. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, now you go. <laughs> oh, yeah. So all that's right. Most of the reason that people know the eagle is, A, it's an eagle, and it was Atlanta's first eagle. By the way, it has moved now, so if anyone is looking for the eagle, it's not in the same location now. It's over at Ansley Square by Ansley Mall, okay. and it's a great location. Oh, good. Um, so happy they were able to relocate. Yeah. But... Um, the Eagle, not only was there the raid that gave it huge significance in terms of um, LGBTQ, almost political advocacy, because the Eagle raid really did signal in the political world here yeah. that you couldn't ignore the gays yeah. anymore. You couldn't treat them that way. But it also was one of the first places of employment of RuPaul. Oh, really? When he was here in Atlanta. And so he was a go-go boy at a place called Celebrity Club. Celebrity Club was a punk rock bar that was in the building for, I believe, like two years. And he did his androgynous drag. And there is some very early documentation of him doing what was told to me as like having programs similar to like a fake TV show, which kind of, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so in, in my mind, it is like, yeah. this is where he was experimenting with like taking those next steps. Yeah, where he had those thoughts about like exactly. what could be possible. Yes. Oh, that's really interesting. Yes, and he did perform there a number of times. A lot of people performed there. It was a live music place. Um, oh, so. At the time in like the 80s, gay bars often were video only. And then okay. straight bars didn't necessarily want too many gays to come. There's some documentation that 688, which many people know is like the new wave bar of Atlanta okay. at that time, they didn't want too many gays to come. And that's why certain bands weren't allowed to play at 688 too often. I feel like um, I will have to come back to Atlanta and maybe do another episode about the club scene here yeah. because there, there are a lot of like rules and like spoken and unspoken and shit that goes down to like manage who does and does not get to go to a particular space. Yeah. Um, but let's go back to the Eagle yeah. because um, with, this was a, a queer space that you worked to preserve. Mm-hmm. So what did you do? Yeah, so for the Eagle designation, um, that's exactly what it is, a designation. So okay. when I say designation, there's federal designations and local designations for historic property. Federal designations like the National Register, mm-hmm. which it's great. It's basically just a glorified list of what is worthy of preservation in the United States. A lot to unpack there, I bet. There's a lot of time. There's a lot of drama about that. Um, 
And then there's local designations, which are through local zoning ordinances, which actually have the power to tell you, you can't do this, you can't do that. Yeah. And ultimately, the goal of that is to mitigate development pressures and protect properties from alterations and demolition. Yeah. So I knew that the Eagle and the Kodak building's lease was going to come up. Okay. The Kodak building is another iconic building next door to the Eagle, both owned by the same property owner. And it became very clear to me, this was also during COVID, that as the Eagle was struggling during COVID, the Kodak building's empty. It had been empty for a while, too. It had been empty for 30 years. Yeah. It, red flags were going up in my head. Ooh, and... Um... I should, this, this will be helpful for people. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a Krispy Kreme, like oh, right yeah. across the street from the Eagle and that Kodak building. That's the one that burned down. You can look that up. And didn't some celebrity end up buying it? I think Shaq's had I think it for Shaquille a while. Shaquille O'Neal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there you go. It's burned down. Well, it's attempted to be burned down three times. <laughs> right. But then it really burned down. <laughs> like all of a sudden this building just keeps almost burning down. Yeah. Huh. I feel like it was arson, but don't, not sure say? if I can say it. Yeah. But Back to the eagle. Again. Yeah, back to the eagle. So it was very clear that it was in danger. Right. And so I ended up doing about 80 pages worth of research and writing. Um, to create a preliminary designation report to give to the city so they can copy and paste since they don't have the staff time. Sure. Um, and they're also not LGBTQ history experts. Right. But you, um, you did that and gave it to the city so that they would apply to the... So they could landmark it. To the dramatic federal people. Nope. Or oh, so it could be at local. At the city level. Okay. So Great. it was the first building in the... Deep South to be landmarked by a historic preservation ordinance. And it is somewhat protected um, now from demolition. I throw the somewhat in there because it's very, very ugly. <laughs> and also the bar is moved. Hey, that's true. But just because an occupant moves doesn't mean the history is gone. I think a good example of that is George Washington's dead. We're not going to get rid of his house now. That's true. The Margaret Mitchell house. Same thing right. with Stonewall. Yeah. If Stonewall were to not be in the building anymore, should we unlandmark it? <laughs> doesn't make sense to me, but I keep hearing that argument. And it's one that actually pisses me off a little bit. Oh, good. That'll make for good podcasts. Get angry. It does. It's like, oh, LGBTQ people don't deserve a landmark unless they're still in it. Hmm. And I even hear that from the community. Yeah, I literally, and they literally just that, fell in that trap. Yeah. Yeah. And they, when I did the Eagle designation, it was all positive when the city announced it. But then when the city gave too much back to the property owner, saying that they could demolish half of the building, basically, and sure, sure. It's a weak designation, in my opinion, now. Okay. Um, but after they did that, we rescinded our support for it. Oh. But because it wasn't 
on par with all the other landmarks. I mean, you did city. all this research, you, you gave them the work, you know, and they agreed yeah. with you yeah. that it should be preserved, but then they gave it a weak designation. Yeah, I don't necessarily care. I don't personally take it that I did all the research and they just copy and paste. I really don't. But the thing that really does make me feel bad is like, hey, we have so many sites recognized in the city. Why is the first LGBTQ one the one that's treated this way? Yeah. If it was an architectural landmark, a black landmark. Yeah. I just feel like we got not the same quality, if that makes sense. I mean, we are in the deep south and we need to be aware that this does happen. Yeah. Um, and I think that because like, because I was born, born in this area, raised in this area and then moved, uh, when I come back, I'm like, wait, why is why is the Capitol on like a Confederate Avenue? 